Welcome everybody to the Venture Capital Podcast. Today we're gonna to talk about some of the like big misconceptions or misunderstandings or things that maybe entrepreneurs don't fully appreciate. And we're gonna start by telling a story from Utah on the last area since he likes to go by. <laughs> Created a company called Link, became at some point, went public. But at a certain point, the company got acquired before it went public. And I think what is known or spoken about in the community without knowing the actual numbers is that he was the most successful entrepreneur from Utah who got paid the least. And it's largely because he didn't understand some of the terms that we're talking about today. Yep. Yeah. So what happened in his case? So my understanding is he didn't understand specifically what a liquidation preference is. And it might go a little bit bigger between um, common stock versus preferred stock that Yep. Some, some stock is looked at very differently. And in Utah, about 20 years ago when this happened, so it was a little bit longer, it wasn't uncommon to have this term of liquidation preference, but it being a 7 to 12x multiple of revenue. Wow. Even even 20 years ago, that was a lot. Well, so I don't know, I don't know his actual numbers, but yeah. I know back when I was working with a group called the Utah Angels, they're no longer around. Those were common terms. Yeah. And then Silicon Valley um, entrepreneurs started coming to the state and really kind of portraying a light that these were hard money terms. Yeah, yeah. But so those aren't happening, those terms still exist, but typically not to that extent. Yeah. I think maybe three or four X might've been more common back then. And I don't know what actual terms were. So yeah. So let's be clear, like what a liquidation preference wait, wait, is. And before we do this, we should do a preference that this is not legal advice. This is not finance advice. Contact your attorney or your lawyer. This is just us talking from our experience and understanding. This is educational purposes only always find professional advice. Yeah. But hopefully these are the kinds of things that you should bring up with your attorney when you're fundraising. So for example, liquidation preference. So what is a liquidation preference? Well, when a venture capitalist invests in your company, usually they're going to do it with preferred shares, right? You're going to set a new series of shares that'll be preferred. And part of the reason they do that is because it allows venture capitalists to tie certain provisions and rights to those shares. One of those that's extremely common is a liquidation preference. And it's designed really so that the investor gets their money back first before anybody else in the event of a liquidation. Um, usually when things go sideways. A liquidation meaning if the company sells. The company sells, yep. And it could be even be like the company sells assets, right? Like it's not a good outcome. So let's say like you raise a million dollars at a $9 million valuation. So they, the VC ends up owning 10% of the company and then the company doesn't do well and it ends up getting acquired for like $5 million. With a one X liquidation preference, the VC is gonna get their million dollars back and then the common and, and everybody else will split the remaining 4 million. So in that case, they're getting 20%, even though they only owned 10%, if that makes sense. That's what a liquidation preference is, like from a very basic standpoint. Now, what happened in your story, right, is that liquidation wasn't like a 1x. The liquidation was like 2, 3, 4, maybe even higher. Um, and so even though they had this like great outcome for the company, the investors you know, they took out so much money based on their liquidation preference that there wasn't a whole lot left for the, the common shareholders at the end of the day. Yeah, I mean, like an example of this would be, let's say you took on 30 million investment and it sold for 100 million. And I think a safe term liquidation preference multiple would be 3x. So the company sold for 100 million and 30 million was put in. The investors would pull out 90 million, yep. three times their investment. 
and then there would only be 10 million 10 left. million left to split and even though you had a hundred million dollar exit right mm -hmm. and the investors they just made three times their investment so like they're happy you know and, and the and the common doesn't get a whole lot left right you know i think the reality is those terms used to be a lot more common both in utah as well as silicon valley and new york like on the coast everywhere but over time, like that power dynamic has shifted more in favor of the entrepreneur. And so it's very uncommon for you to see liquidation preferences that are above 1x. Um, now, they do happen if the entrepreneur says, hey, look, my company is really should be really worth a lot more than maybe the investors agree. And so what VCs will do sometimes, they'll say, okay, fine, you want the really high valuation, we'll give it to you, but we're going to add some structure, right? And that structure could be a liquidation preference that's greater than 1x. Maybe it's 2x or 3x. So that, that definitely happens. And, and that's designed to compensate the investor for taking on some additional risk. Now, there, there is a slight nuance to liquidation preferences that, that you should be aware of. And that is there is a participating preferred uh, and there's a non-participating preferred. So in a participating preferred, the way I think about that is you get your cake and you get to eat it too. So in that case you get the gains on the investment plus you get your money back first. So an, a non-participating, you actually have to choose as the investor. So if I put in, you know, let's think about your example. Uh, let's go for easy, let's make it 70 million. 70 million. Free money. Free so money. it's 100 million post money. Okay, so you own 30% of the business. Okay, so in that case, let's say the company sells for a hundred million dollars, right? In that case, you're indifferent. You either get your, you get your $30 million back because you own 30% of the business. If the company sells for $200 million, in that case, you still own 30% of the business, so you'd get $60 million back, right? And so you have to choose. Do you wanna keep your, your liquidation preference and take the $30 million, or do you wanna relinquish that and convert to common shares and get $60 million? Well, that's an obvious choice, right? You're gonna convert to common, you're gonna get the $60 million. Participating preferred, you get both. So you get your $30 million back, now there's $170 million to be split, then you convert to common, and you still own 30% of that, so you're gonna end up with, you know, it's like $51 million. So your total take is now going to be $81 million instead of $60 million. What's the most common in today's investment? So terms? the most common is not to have any structure. Okay. And the reason for that is that one, you want to be, you want to be entrepreneur friendly. And two, as an investor, what, what investors have realized is that the same terms that they put on the company are the same terms that the next investor is going to want. And once you've invested in the company, now you're like in bed with the entrepreneur, like you're really aligned. And so when somebody else comes in and they want the same terms, it ends up hurting you. And so you're bet like generally it's best just to have what we call a clean term sheet, which is like a non-participating one X liquidation preference, a reasonable valuation, no crazy anti-dilution clauses and so on and so forth. Like the more clean and, and simple it is, the better. Which, you know, that brings up uh, anti-dilution clauses. Okay. So let's talk about another story. I mean, this was years ago, but I remember meeting with this young entrepreneur and he had raised money at, I believe it was like a $20 million valuation. And the investors had put in uh, what's called a, a full ratchet clause for anti-dilution purposes. 
So essentially what happened is the entrepreneur is like, my companies were $20 million. The investors were like, no, it's not. And he's like, yes, it is. And they're like, fine, we really like this deal. We'll give you the $20 million valuation, but we're going to put a ratchet clause in place. If your next round, you don't grow into that valuation and another investor comes in and says, you're not worth 20, you're worth 10, then we want it so that our investment converts or, or there's more shares added such that it was as though we had invested at that $10 million valuation. And what that essentially does is massively dilute all of the common shareholders. And this poor entrepreneur was like in a really tough spot because he was like, you know, we raised all this money at that higher valuation. I'm going back out to market. I can only pull in a valuation that's half as much. And so that money is going to convert at that lower valuation plus the money I need to raise. And it's going to almost like completely wipe out all the common shareholders. And my board is upset and I'm in this really tough spot. And I was like, I was like, that really is tough. Like I, you know, I don't know what to tell you. For those that are listening, my advice is, oh, in my opinion, you should always trade valuation for structure. So what I mean by that is you should always take the lower valuation with less structure and more, more of a clean term sheet than the other way around. Don't let your ego get in the way of things because you know when things work out well, it, structure doesn't matter, but the reality is things are most likely not gonna work out well and it's ultimately gonna hurt you the most uh, in the relationship. Because VCs is what we do day in, day out. Like VCs know how to play the game, they know how to structure things much better than an entrepreneur does who's only gonna raise money you know, maybe two or three times in their entire lifetime. Just be thoughtful and be careful. Like, Clean term sheets, way better at a lower valuation, way better than like really complex structured term sheets at a higher valuation. What's the, the trend right now to have them to be cleaner? Oh, for sure. hundred percent. Cause yeah. I think if you're looking at the trend of the last five or 10 years, like a look, uh, a convertible note came out, yep. which there were very little terms. I mean, if there's a, there's like three or four terms, there's, there's a ceiling cap. There is the, the interest rate and then the, 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 the discount. So like, let's say. I don't know what standards standard terms would be. There might be like a it'd be like a it'd be like a loan that yep. might have like a ten percent interest rate on it that may say, hey, if this company raises the next round at a twenty million dollar valuation, we still come in at a five, and then whatever that next round is, we're at a twenty percent discount. So, yep. and that was it, that is much cleaner than what was historically. But what is maybe what is the difference between a convertible note and the new the new document that's coming in now a safe a capital S A F E. Uh, so a safe is a simple agreement for future equity. And it was developed by Y Combinator as a kind of a replacement for uh, convertible notes because like convertible notes, I mean, they're a little bit wonky. They have some downsides to them. And really like what you're, when you invest in a safe or you invest in a convertible note in a seed stage company, what you really want is equity, but you also want to kind of be top of stack and you want to, you want to kick the can down the road on valuation. And so a safe kind of helps you do a lot of those things. There's a lot of debate in terms of like, are safes better than convertible notes? And and I don't, I don't know that I want to jump into that whole debate here, but generally what you have with a convertible note, like you said, is you, you're going to have an interest rate that's usually paid in kind, which means you're not going to pay like cash on the interest rate. It just means that when it converts, you're going to give up a little bit more equity. It'll have a a cap so that's when it converts it won't convert any higher than what that cap is and then it might have 
uh, some discount rate. So when it converts, maybe if it doesn't hit that cap, it may have like a 20 or 30% discount to the next round. And those are put in place to provide some incentive for investors to participate now um, when they don't really know what the valuation is. Because as an angel, like you would not want to invest in the next, I don't know, like Facebook at, you know, when it's a bunch of guys and gals in a garage and you're taking insane risk and then they're, they like knock it out of the park in the next round is like at a billion dollar valuation. And so you took all this risk, but you converted a billion, right? Like you'd want to have some caps in there so that like, now yeah, maybe you convert it like 50 million or whatever it might be. It depends on the business. With a safe, it's a lot simpler. It's they're cheaper to use. Frankly, like you can just go to Y Combinator's website and you can download the safe and you can make just a few little tweaks. And then you just reference the safe back to Y Combinator. And you frankly, in many cases, like, may not need an attorney, not legal advice. Go talk to an attorney. Always talk to an attorney, but it might save you like 20,000. But it might save you a lot of money. And that that's really the whole goal with it. Now, it's not truly a piece of debt. It doesn't have an interest rate. It doesn't have a few of these other mechanisms. There is some debate whether or not it actually puts you in a better uh, position if the company were to go south, right? You, you may not get paid back first, right? It, it depends on, in terms of where it sits in that, that preference stack. But that's the general idea. It's just a really fast, easy, more affordable way to raise capital, especially if your, your whole plan is in six to 18 months, we're going to raise a priced uh, mm-hmm. round. Don't most VCs, though, have price rounds versus safes? Like if, if you're bringing on an investor, it's most likely going to be friends, families, or an angel investor. I imagine you've never, University no, Growth some, Fund. some VCs will invest in safes. Have you we, done a safe we, or convertible in note? safes. Yep. Okay. And convertible notes. Really? That yep. kind of surprises me. Yeah. No, we've done it. I mean, at the end of the day, we don't want to be sitting on debt. Mm-hmm. We want to convert to equity, but sometimes that's, I mean, you can find good deals that way. It just kind of depends. I had a friend who just raised from a local VC, and we'll keep it, I won't mention who, sure. what, who it was or what it was. I think they wanted to do a save and the and the VC is like, you know, we're just going to do a price round yeah. at a high seven figures. Well, then that probably worked out well for them then. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there are trade-offs for sure. I would say if you can do a price round and you can feel confident around valuation, then a price round is superior than a save or a convertible note. What are standard price rounds? Let's say you've got like three devs, no traction. What's the current price round? Oh, man. I mean, it really depends. The, there's just so too many early more for factors, you? right? What would be the, the range? Of I don't know, like three to 10 million per year. Three to 10 million? Okay. Yeah. What would be the next big inflection point that might change that? So if you're doing like, probably the next big inflection point is going to be once you're doing about a million to 2 million ARR, in which case you're going to be 20 to 50 million, okay. depending on growth. I mean, it just depends on so many factors, but okay. kind of in that range. Okay. Interesting. I hope you guys like that because most VCs never throw out numbers. I mean, that's just what I'm seeing. I mean, and these numbers change, right? Like it wasn't that long ago that a series A round was priced at like 10 to 15 pre. And now I'd say the average series A is priced closer to like 20, 30, 40, especially the last like, I mean, the last two months are a little bit of an exception. But before that, like for like six, seven months, like there were pre's at like, you know, 100, 200, 300 million pre. I mean, just like crazy, crazy stuff because there's so much money chasing after deals. 
But I mean, look, those are unique deals where you've got a founder that's like been there, done that. They've got a crazy big idea, huge market. They've, they've built an insane amount of FOMO, right? Like that's very different from like, oh, hey, I got this cool idea. Me and my buddies, we're going to start something. We, we crank on a like an MVP in our garage and put it out there and start getting a little bit of traction. Like those are two you know, very, very different things. So, mm-hmm. but look, I think part of this too is not everybody should raise venture money. In fact, like probably only like, I don't know, less than 5% of businesses in the U S should actually be thinking about raising venture. And, um, yeah, because you know, once you, once you get on the venture train, right, you've got to keep fundraising, you got to keep growing, you, you're no longer like your your investors won't be happy with a hundred million dollar exit. They want a billion dollar exit, right? And so when that hundred million dollar exit comes along, you know, you're gonna get a lot of pushback from your investors, like, no, we're not gonna make a big enough return on this. Like we it's need a you to crappy keep going. Idea. Yeah. I mean, we're looking at a deal like in real time where the entrepreneur, you know, had an offer and the investors were like no, like we'll, we'll match the offer because we want you to keep growing. Right. So, um, and you know, he, he gave up a decent chunk of change in order to keep pushing the ball forward. Right. I know another entrepreneur that had a similar situation. He was like, nah, he's like, I'm only going to make a margin, like marginally more and it's going to be so much more headache. And so he decided not to raise venture money and, uh, and, he's looking to you know sell the company. So, I mean, just be thoughtful around like what are your goals? What matters to you uh, when you're going through this this process, right? And be thought like get a really good attorney, like somebody who does deals day in day out. Don't get like your uncle who like, <laughs> you know, does like people's wills on the weekend. And when you get them like don't be afraid to like ask them and dig into like questions and make sure you understand uh, the terms that are being put across the table. Cause I guarantee you like the VCs, the investors on the other side of the table, they know exactly what they're putting in there. Yep. When I think of Garrett G's exit you know, of scan, scan.me yeah. to Sony, I th- no, yeah, to from Sony. Snap. Yeah. From snap. So yeah. But Sony had the documents that got leaked. Ah, okay. I think I might have to double check. Um, but like when he, when he was telling me their story, how they were going through the exit, like their attorney was smart. Their attorney said, don't ask for this, ask higher. Yep. And your uncle or aunt may not know or, you know, sibling, like you want someone who's been in the trenches. Yeah. Or they may tell you to ask for more when it's totally inappropriate for you to ask for more and ends up killing the deal. Is this called a, we might have, but there's a local investor. Every time he wants to close a deal, the terms will be negotiated in the last minute. This is a local Utah uh, growth equity investor. You know what I'm talking about, though, right? Yeah. Is that common or not common in growth equity? Uh, it's not super common. But no. but it's common with that individual, right? Or no? For yeah, I I know that it's happened. But yeah, like these these are and, and yeah, it, it doesn't I mean, look yeah. Sometimes it happens, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, look the the play there is you get to the eleventh hour, fifty ninth minute the company is oftentimes like out of cash out of cash. And then he's like, and I want this extra little term and it puts the entrepreneur to bind. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that's a good reason why, you know, you should be doing your diligence on the investor that you're working with. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if they have a reputation for doing that sort of thing, that doesn't mean that you don't do a deal with them. It just means you better have a lot of money in your bank mm-hmm. account if you're going to do the deal. So when you have a backup out, plan or you don't at have the a- 11th hour, you're going to be like, 
doesn't matter. I'm going to go find someone or else. Or don't have a no-shop clause. Or if there is a no-shop clause, you made them make them pay for that no-shop clause. So yeah. I think Omniture had that in their yeah. term right before the market crashed. Yeah. And Pelion, or Blake, I think was the put money in. They backed out because the market crashed. And that's how they funded the company for the next year. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't know that story. That's interesting. I need to go look at the, the, the backstory for John. What about control as far as far as like the last term that's commonly misunderstood? Yeah, look, so when I was when I first started in this industry, we went and had this meeting with like one of the top venture funds out there. And it was so interesting because they were like really transparent in a lot of ways. And uh, somebody asked a question around like control or, you know, valuation or ownership percentages and so forth. And they were like, look, like when we're meeting with an entrepreneur, there's a lot of sensitivity around like, I want to control my business. I want to own at least 51%, you know, all of these things. And they were like, you know, we never take majority positions in the companies we invest in. We're always taking minority positions, 10, 20, 30, 40%. Like, but in the docs, we're putting in provisions and blocking rights that essentially give us all the control we want. You can't sell the company without our permission. You can't raise money without our permission. You can't hire somebody at a C-suite without C-suite level without our permission. You can't add board members without our permission, right? Like they, 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 you can't transfer shares or sell shares to someone else without our permission, right? So they put on all these terms so that like, yeah, you own 51 or 60 or 70 or 90% of your business, but the reality is everything that matters, the VC has a say on and some control. You know, some of that's kind of been loosened up over time. But what was interesting to me is like just how blatant the VC was is like, yeah, like they own most of the company, but at the end of the day, we kind of still maintain control. So it's another reason to be thoughtful, one, about like the terms and understand like what what you're getting, what you're giving up, but also and understanding like the VC's reputation and what they're like to work with. Because sometimes you have those terms and they never get used, right? They're, they're more in case of just a really, really bad divorce, essentially. Uh, and then last is like decide if venture is really the game you want to play, right? Like you are going to give up control when you raise venture money. The flip side is you're going to gain time, your most valuable resource, theoretically, because a VC can plow a ton of money in. That can give you really fast growth. That fast growth can attract more venture money. And so you can grow your business really quickly, very big, and sell it for a big number in a relatively short time period versus trying to build it yourself, right? It's, it's, it's a difference of like, do I build this business over the next like 20 years or do I build this business over the next five to seven? and achieve the same outcome at the end. One, you're gonna give up a lot more control, but you're gonna get it done faster. And the other, like you'll maintain control, but it could take you a very long time uh, to build it up to where where you wanna get it. Okay, well, I think these are the most common misunderstood terms in 2022 for raising venture capital. Would you agree with that, Peter? I don't know if they're the most, but hopefully they're helpful as you're going about it so that you walk into the venture, into the fundraising process a little bit more informed. And if there's other terms that you, or questions to this video, comment below if you're on YouTube, and then we'll make sure we answer them on future episodes. Awesome, thanks for joining us. All right, thanks guys. Mm -hmm.